Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. We're going to be talking about uh, another one of our bucket list items. And this particular one that I get to talk about is kind of a fun one. Um, the guys have done an amazing job up to this point. It's been really neat hearing different people get to share about the thing that they're really passionate about, that like every Christian should know or do or see. And Corbin unpacked like, man, what, how awesome would it be to read the whole Bible? And some of you have done that and other people are like, yeah, I could see why that's a bucket list thing. Uh, and if you missed that one, he did a great job. Um, Chris did an awesome job that led worship this morning a couple weeks ago. He unpacked baptism and talked about how important it is for believers to be baptized, but also how important it is for us to understand baptism so that we can talk about it, like we know what it means for someone to be baptized and why would somebody be baptized? Because all of you have the same commission that any of us that work in ministry do. We all have the same commission to go and make disciples and, and baptize people. And so if somebody came to you and said, I, I think I'm ready to do the following Jesus, become a Christian. I don't even know what you call it. How do I start? Similar to the way the people said at Pentecost to Peter, hey, we sort of kind of come to our senses. Now what do we do? What would you do? Are you ready? Do you know how to talk to somebody about baptism? And so if you don't, go back and catch the sermon that Chris did. And then last week, Cornelius did an awesome job talking about hospitality, which I thought was such a fun bucket list thing that was like a curveball that wasn't something you would have normally expected of like, this is something we hope every Christian would see or do before they die, would be like, and he talked about this idea of giving you a challenge of a a year of hospitality. Like, what if you got absolutely crazy, radical, and went, I'm going to just go all out to be overtly purposely, intentionally on point with hospitality this year or a month or a quarter, right? And he unpacks that in a great way and gave a great lesson about Abraham and Sarah and the strangers, and that was from last week. This week, I get to talk about one of the more obvious bucket list items that I think uh, one of the things is on most every Christian's heart at one point is to go to the land of the Bible, particularly Israel. And so we'll talk a little bit about Israel and a little bit about Turkey and uh, to kind of get you framed up and give you a little bit of a sense of what it can be like. Go ahead and watch this before we jump in. It's a pretty amazing place, as you can imagine. Um, I kind of had this thought while we were backpacking that related to trying to talk about this, because as we were walking all over the place, I mean, we hiked probably close to 100 miles with backpacks and all over the countryside and a lot of solitude, no cell phone is fantastic, um, and a lot of time to think and talk to the Lord. And one of the things that I just kept running through my mind is, is how do you how do you zero in on like talking about Israel and Turkey and, and for me, what's important to say? And I just wrestled with that a lot. And there was one point where we hiked around the corner of this uh, trail we had been on in the southern tip of this mountain range, and we were turning the corner and hiked up the top of this big pass. We're now at about 8,300 feet, and it was the first time on our trail that we were on the western 
northern side and could see west. And we had this epic thunderstorm the night before where we definitely thought we were going to die. Um, and, um, and it had blown all the smoke out. And so we could see the Wallawas and 50, 60 miles away to these white cap mountain ranges. And we could see down into Hell's Canyon. And, and it's just this epic view. And then and we're, we're enjoying this view. It was this part of the trail that we'd never seen yet because we hadn't been around on the other side of the mountains. And then we got up to the crest of this saddle at 8,300 feet, and literally it's like you're looking at all of this behind you, and then you turn the corner, and it's like two steps. The world changed. Everything before us was millions and millions and millions and millions of rocks. There's these huge mountain peaks that are just shedding off stones that are covered in iron and dirt and debris, and it was like, it was beautiful and ugly. There was nothing gorgeous about it except that it was so overwhelming. And as you're standing up there, and the trail guide calls it this area, and you can see this trail zigzagging through the rocks for miles, working its way down all these uh, switchbacks, and it's called the Devil's Garden because everything that goes in there dies. It's just this hot bowl of a billion rocks. And the scope of it, like as I'm standing there, I'm like, this was overwhelming to me to look at the Wallawas and look at Hell's Canyon and and to see for a hundred miles in in any direction that way. And then to turn around and see this, this actually was the thing that like overwhelmed me. And and I I love taking pictures and I love photography and I love trying to take pictures that inspire people to want to go where the picture was, right? Like that's just a passion of mine. And as I'm looking at this, I'm like, there's no way. There's no way to take a picture of this that anybody could ever even get a glimmer of the scope of how big this is, how deep it is, how hot it is, how dangerous and rugged it is. It'll just look like a hill. And as I was standing up there on that pass, I was like, it was, it was just sort of settling in with me about like, you're going to have to just be okay with, that's a lot like trying to explain to people about Israel and Turkey. It's really hard. It's really hard. So I'm going to give you the best taste I can. Because for me, I get the, the bucket list thing of like this idea that everybody wants to go to Israel. And just about anybody that's ever put their faith in Christ, and as you follow Christ and, be, and become stronger in your faith, you at some point hear about like the idea that a lot of this stuff is still there in Israel and Jerusalem and that you could go there and that there are tours and, and it, it is on a lot of Christians' bucket list. And so I'm going to talk about Israel just briefly, and then uh, I'm going to spend a little bit more time talking about Turkey because it's a little less obvious of a bucket list choice. Um, so for Israel, one of the things that, uh, that happens is, I'll try and help the video is really helpful, but I'll try and kind of just give you a taste. Like, uh, one of the things that'll happen is you go there, much like what this video showed, and, and there's all these experiences, and then you come home, and people will say to you things like, how was it? Was it really hot? And you're like, yeah, right? Right? And you're trying to, what happens is inside your head and your heart, you're wrestling with not vomiting all over this person because they want to know about the weather. But inside of you, you can't disconnect from the fact that you 
got to walk into the garden tomb. You get to learn that there are two likely sites for Jesus' burial, and one is more supported by most scholars as the place Jesus was buried. Not like next to this area, not a recreated, not a museum that remade it so that you could sort of see what it would have been like, like a Lewis and Clark exhibit. Uh Uh-uh. The tomb. Your friend's asking you about the weather and you're remembering what it felt like to be inside of the tomb where Jesus was buried. To reach out and put your hand on the stone where he laid. You get to stand inside of there not go look at it, not like an American museum where there's a cord in front of it and you can only look at it from a distance. You get to just walk around in there. You get to pause. You get to pray. You get to take a deep breath. You get to feel the heat and the smell and the, the, the dirt of the rock. It's not like anything you'd ever do in your life. There's no way to explain the way going to Israel can impact you, change your faith, boost your confidence in the one that you've always believed in, but now you're believing with all of this like meat on the bones that was never there before. Israel is full of amazing, amazing experiences from the desert fortress of Masada to see the massive engineering and the ingenuity of Herod and, and millions and millions, like a 10 million gallon cistern dug on the top of a giant rock inside it. Oh, there's just like 13 of those up there. How did the water get here? I'll let you Google that one on your own. You get to go north to the Sea of Galilee and explore Capernaum in the region where probably 75% of Jesus's ministry took place. You get to look at the land where he grew up where he would have studied and followed a rabbi and learned and, and played even as a boy in these very same hills. You go north of the Sea of Galilee to this land that changes so much you can hardly believe you're still in the same continent. You went from the the most barren, hot, desolate place you've probably ever been in your life that makes the Snake River look like an oasis. It's so desolate. You go from there to the other end of Israel up north to the base of this mountain that has ski slopes. And you're like, what? Your brain is just jumbled the whole time trying to compute all of the things that you're taking in and you get to go to this temple to one of the most pagan gods of the land at the time pan and this giant hole in the ground that is there it's not a recreation it's not a it used to be here and it's been a you know caved in it's there it was known as the gates of hell and the, the relief carvings all around the wall, uh, wall with these little statuettes and these different uh, pantheon of gods that would have been worshipped and sacrificed to there. And you learn about these things. And you learn that Jesus purposely took his disciples up here on this crazy adventure way out of the way to one of the most horrible places 
a God-fearing follower would have ever wanted to go so that he could talk to them about who he really is. And where he, he stood there and asked them, who do people say that I am? And they wrestled with it. Some people say this, some people say this, some people say this. And he famously asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And he says, well, you're the Messiah. You're the son of God. And Jesus, you get to stand probably within, I don't know, 100 yards. Like it's, like it's not hard to figure out. If you were there giving a lesson, where would you go? There's a few obvious big spots. You get to stand where Jesus would have hung out with the disciples and had that conversation overlooking this temple of Pan. And you get to, you get to stand there and hear the words of Jesus to Peter saying that like that right there, what you just said, hang on, you guys stop. Listen, what he just said, he just said, he just said that I'm the Messiah. That, those words that just came out of your mouth, that's what I'm going to build my church on. And you know what? I want you guys to hear it right here, right now in this place. That right there will not prevail. The gates of hell will not prevail. This stuff here, this pagan garbage, this junk that everybody clings to, that wants to, to, to be drawn to, that's so attractive from the distance, that will not prevail. And you're standing there looking at the stuff, hearing the lesson, reading the scriptures, and it's like, comes alive. Everywhere you go in Israel, you're standing on ground that connects to the story God's been telling since the beginning of time. It's amazing. Turkey, on the other hand, is not really a common bucket list destination for Christians. People are like, Turkey, where is that exactly? All right. Mediterranean Sea, all of the dirt north of it. Turkey, now you know. In the Bible, it's Asia Minor. It's pretty important territory considering most of the New Testament took place there. The vast majority of the New Testament took, takes place in what is modern-day Turkey. When you go to Turkey, you get to uh, visit the ruins of the seven churches that John wrote to in the book of Revelation. Real places with real history and real context and real stories and real people and real problems and real stuff. Uh, one of the things that really starts to come alive when you go to Turkey is this tension, this overwhelming understanding of how hard it was, how invasive all of these other gods were. We live in a world that's so disconnected from that. Like maybe in high school, we'd learned about Greek mythology and that's about the limit of our, I sort of know about Roman or Greek gods or I, you know, have learned a few things or watched a few movies. We're so disconnected from it. The world that they were in and as you go and you see the ruins, what you'll learn is that you get an idea of how important these gods were. When you see the temple of Zeus, multiple ones, some of them on top of this Acropolis or Mount, uh, this you know, big mountain uh, buttress of stone and the temple of Zeus up there. You see the temples to Artemis all throughout the land and other gods. And you see the ingenuity and the genius that went into building these things and, and the effort that went into them. And you can't help but like 
not only be in, like here we are thousands and thousands of years later looking at their shambled ruins and you're still awestruck when you see them because they're just so magnificent. To see a piece of marbled stone cut perfectly in a circle, eight foot in diameter, with columns that go 60 feet in the air, with beautiful stonework and intricacies, and a stone gable roof that spans 40 or 60 or 80 feet by hundreds of feet long, and to know that there's not man lifts and cranes and electricity, and and you're just, you're sort of just, you can't hardly help but being impressed. And it starts to give you a taste of the challenge of people like Paul and Silas and Timothy and other early believers in, in God. Like, how do we communicate a gospel, uh, good news about a, sa- a savior that can lead you to a right relationship with the one true God in a world that is full of amazing gods? that people obviously not only believe in, but are highly devoted to, like, holy smokes. You roll into town, there is no doubt what this place is about. And you get to wrestle with this tension. You, you get to go to the, the, to the places, for me, one of the places that was just really, really personally impactful for me, and it was not the most... Uh, I don't know, fancy place. We went to a lot of cool places. This place, I have a picture of this on my wall on the office to show the port there at Perga. Um, this, this place is the, a seaport at Perga. And this is, if you look in Acts 13, you'll see the story of Paul and Barnabas and uh, John Mark, and they're sailing from Antioch of Syria, and they stop on an island, and then they work their way here. This is their first landing spot in Asia Minor. And for me personally, uh, I love Israel and I can't wait to go back. I learned so much going and I can't wait to continue to grow and learn and connect with the stories of the Lord. But for me personally, Turkey just really impacted me on a heart level differently than Israel. I, I did not grow up in church and I don't have any Christians in my family tree that I'm aware of in any direction. On my mom or my dad's side, grandparents, great-grandparents, anybody that there probably is, none that I know of. And so I came to Christ later in life as a young adult and, and I don't have that like, I don't have this, this like long history kind of faith. I have a very, in the grand scheme of things, new kind of faith. And, and Israel is a place where you're just deeply connected to people that have a history of a really old faith, to a God that they've been following for generations. And I love learning about it, but it doesn't relate to me personally. When I go to Turkey and I stand at this place and we go out on those rocks by that little lighthouse thing out there and we sit down and camp out for an hour and we learn about what it took for Paul to get there and this place where they were coming and the world that they were bringing the gospel to. And, we, and I get to stand in the place and watch the boats come in that, that were like Paul and Barnabas and John Mark sailing in for the first time in the history of our earth to bring the salvation message to people 
who didn't grow up in church, who didn't have a long-standing connection with God, who didn't even know who the right God was, that really resonates with me. Because I stand there and I'm like, this is the place where it started for people like me. And you turn around and you look at the seawall and all the layers of stuff that's built up behind you and you see that you're looking at stone that was there when Paul turned around and got off the boat. And you walk up these old cobblestone paths. Some have been rebuilt. Some are really old. Some are the rocks. Not recreation stuff. Not it sort of was like this. Like It's the road that Paul walked up. And it just connects you with the story of God in a way that's just so hard to communicate. All throughout Turkey you go and, and you see the massiveness of the Greco-Roman world, the influence of Rome, the power, the engineering, all of the stuff that many of us are familiar with, that they brought water, running water to places and irrigated places that didn't have water. They had indoor plumbing and crazy cool engineering. Like those of you that are here, if you're involved in, if you like building stuff or if you're in engineering, like study Rome, go, go there on that merit alone and you'd be fascinated. It's so cool. And, and you see all of these things and you can understand how a, a, a regular person just a regular old person, like how it would be so overwhelming of like, what, what am I doing here? How do, like everywhere I look, it's bigger than me, more powerful than me, smarter than me, better than me. And I'm supposed to be the believe in me guy. I've got the right message. There's a thousand messages. You come into town and you say that, believe in me because my God is the right God. My God is the God who has a, a salvation available in him, forgiveness of your sins available in him. And when you put your faith in Jesus, the Messiah, you can have a right relationship with the one true God. And they're like, that's really cool. It sounds just like what the other guy was telling us. I don't know if you heard of him. His name's Caesar. He would like us to put our faith in him, and he brings salvation. He brings peace. He brings hope for a better future. I, which way do we go? I don't know if you've noticed, but he's sort of got a little bit of clout around here, right? And you wrestle with this tension. You go throughout these places and these ruins, and you get to hear the story of people bringing the gospel to people who had all kinds of gods. And it starts to permeate. One of the things that starts to permeate you and, and like challenge you as you're studying and learning and going through these lands is you're starting to go like, wait a minute, well then, well then how did it work? I mean, let's be honest. Like, why would someone have believed in this story over that story or that story or that? Like, how, how did they do it? And it starts to feel a little bit like a mystery that you have to solve. Little do you know that you're getting a first century boots on the ground lesson of how to share the gospel in the same world that you live in. In a world full of people that have all kinds of options, that have all kinds of other solutions, that have any number of ways to get their needs met, problems solved, hope put in. You go to places like uh, uh, the one place here, I'll show you some pictures of uh, uh, 
uh, say the word, Asclepian. Um, Asclepian, which is like, uh, the way for us to understand it would be like the modern-day Mayo Clinic of the day, right? This was a, uh, a healing center for an entire region and beyond. Like people would come hundreds and sometimes even maybe a thousand miles to come to this center for healing. They uh, had this uh, uh, building built in a circular fashion, running water coming down through it so that there was always the sound of water and fresh water coming in and out of it. These unique little tunnels and communication methods to be able to communicate from one room to another. And it was world-renowned at the time as the place to be healed for anything and everything. They had, in fact, a track record of essentially 100% success. And so people would come from around the region and nation with every kind of ailment, like they've got something and they know they're going to die from it or some fever or brokenness or whatever their issue was. And either they would come or their family would, would put together all of the money they could to get them there. This was the place people went as the last hope, the, the, the place you would go when nowhere else could help you. And they go to this place and they come face to face with the stark reality that the message they had heard about it and what was really available weren't the same thing. They come to find out that the way they have a 100% healing rate, the way that their reputation around the world is known as a place that always fixes anybody and everybody is that they only let people in that they can actually fix. And there's a lot of things they didn't know how to fix. And so these people that have given up everything, they come to this place and they're literally turned away at the gate. They're interviewed. They don't meet the criteria. It's too high of a risk. It might, we might not be able to help them. That, that, that's not worth risking our reputation. And so they're turned away. Well, now they've spent everything they have to get there. They're sick or sicker or hurt or more hurt by the time they get there. They have no family, no support, no nothing. And now what? And now we start to hear stories about how Christians started to represent their God and tell the story of about, uh, tell the story of a God who is a compassionate God, a God who is a, a sacrificial God, a God who is a giving God, a loving God, uh, a caring about the least of these, not what you can give me in return kind of God, which is a really different message than all the other gods. And they start to actually tell that story with their actions and their words. And so they start to do what we, what we would be, uh, we would know as uh, hospice care. They start to bring people in who are sick or broken or hurting or dying and help if they can help or just be with them as they pass. They share the gospel with them. They love them. They care about them. And all of a sudden, people are seeing compassionate people, sacrificial people, people that are risking their own health because there's not, they don't know if they're going to catch this thing or not or what their thing is. And they set that aside to love someone well in one of their most horrible times of their life. And it starts to tell a story to the people around them that when you're talking about the God that you're following and you're behaving like this, it doesn't line up with the rest of the gods. And all of a sudden, I'm sort of actually maybe interested in your God. 
over and over and over again, you go to these places and you hear the, the tension of how do you put your God on display in a world full of a million other solutions, a million other gods. You go to places like Ephesus, one of the most famous ancient ruins in the world. Ephesus is amazing. It is, it, it's worthy of a go spend a week by itself if you ever could. It is so cool. There's a, there, there's, paved streets and plumbing and crazy cool, like extravagant hillside full of homes that have been excavated and had like canopies and stuff built over them to protect them from the weather. And you get to walk through them and see the most intricate tile work and art and and heating systems and cooling systems and just all of that stuff. I love building stuff. So that stuff all fascinates me. I get sidetracked just looking at all of them. Like how in the world? And I'm over here trying to figure out how to make sure my tent doesn't leak, right? Like, and you just, you wrestle with all that stuff and you see the amphitheater that seats something like 50,000 people that's still just fully there intact. And you Imagine and hear and learn and, and you, you see the amount of time, particularly that Paul spent in Ephesus and the stories. It, it was in that amphitheater in Ephesus where the whole city went crazy and they were trying to kill him. And Paul's like, like literally, I don't know, 10,000 people streaming into the amphitheater from all around the city. They're trying to string him up and he's fighting his way in there. Let me in here. I got to defend myself, right? And you're like, you're crazy. Right, and you're there, and you're you're learning that story, and imagining the voices, and and you it, it gets you fired up, and then you go around the corner, and you see this place, the Celsus Library. This is a they recreated it. It's it's a lot of it's original, but put back together because it had been knocked down. Um, this library, that's the entrance to this multi-story library. At the time, it was basically the epicenter for knowledge and philosophy and wisdom and poetry in the entire world. There were more scrolls contained there than anywhere else at the time. And everything that was known, was written, was there. This was the Library of Congress of the day, Right? And so this is where people would come to seek knowledge, wrestle with philosophy, understand life, deal, you know, uh, unpack the most uh, famous poetry. This is where all of it happened. This was like, this is where you go to, to grow, to advance, right? Like this was the, the center for moving forward as a civilization. And then where this lady is in the bottom corner, if you go that way, about, uh, about 50 yards, you're going to see... Ruins after ruins after ruins after ruins of little houses, what it looks like. And it was actually houses of ill repute, brothels. And you start to hear and learn the stories of what would happen with the abuse there and the oppression that happened there. And that's not even close to the worst of it. Because the babies that would be born to the hundreds, if not thousands, over generations they were trapped in that cycle, those babies would be taken from them without their permission and left on the hillside up behind in something called infant exposure. And round one was the slave traders that would come and decide which ones, and there's all sorts of criteria that's disgusting about how you would pick a baby that would grow up to be a good slave to sell. Round two was the owners of the brothels 
again with disgusting criteria that they would look for. And what was left oftentimes were babies that were really unhealthy, that had been left out and exposed and not found long enough, had birth defects, had obvious some sort of defect or ailment. And Christians in Ephesus would work the hillside to rescue and save and raise babies that had no other hope. And you start to understand how like James was so passionate about when your faith and your deeds, when your words and your actions line up, it's a powerful testimony about who God is and about what you believe. And the people in Ephesus started to realize that. They started to see people whose faith and deeds lined up to incredibly sacrificial levels. And so for a person who was in that brothel or had a friend of a friend or knew someone whose baby had been taken and and there's all these other messages about all these other solutions and all these other gods and what Caesar's plan is, but this person says, this is the God I believe in and this is what he teaches and this is what it looks like to have a sacrificial love that's long-suffering. This is what grace looks like. They're pretty believable. when the baby they're raising belonged to someone you know. And Christianity began to take root and Christianity began to spread. And as we've heard, it, it, we hear these little flippant statements, these Christianese statements that like, the Christianity overtook the Roman Empire. And it's like, well, that sounds, that's a nice statement, but how in the heck did that happen? What did it actually look like? You get to go and learn that boots on the ground and wrestle with it as you go through the land of Turkey. Um, I would just say, wrapping up, um, I would just say that there are a lot of ways to go to Israel and Turkey. There's a lot of different companies, a lot of different places that you can go with. The company that I showed you the video from is one that Aaron, who used to be the senior pastor here, uh, Aaron leads with those guys, that GTI tours. Uh, Marty Solomon, that a lot of you are familiar with, that teaches Bay Mom. Marty leads with GTI. Brad Gray, that a lot of you are familiar with. Brad leads with GTI. There's a lot of other teachers that lead with them as well. They're a very solid, reputable company where you'll get an awesome excuse me, awesome experience. If anybody is ever thinking of going to Israel or Turkey, I would just say, hit me up. And I will help either, if I can't answer your questions, I'll help get you connected to people that can help answer your questions so that you get the best bang for your buck. Now, let me just finish with this deal here, is that I know a lot of people are like, man, I really would love to do this, but maybe you've got an imaginary price tag in your head where you've sort of imagined this is way out of your reach. Um, both Israel and Turkey. Israel tends to be um, just shy of two weeks is a pretty normal trip, two weeks or less. Um, and you can do Israel for under $5,000, 4,800 to five grand. All inclusive, airfare, food, motel, travel, tips, everything. The only thing you would need money for is just your souvenirs. Like, so just so you have an idea in your mind, five grand. Uh, Turkey is longer. It's usually two weeks or a little bit over two weeks. It's a lot bigger country and there's a lot more time to get from point A to point B on different sites. And so Turkey is a little bit longer. It is gorgeous. Um, uh, it's, it's, the, it's like the Palm Springs of Europe to go to like the Mediterranean. It is, it's not a bad trip, let me tell you. 
Uh, and Turkey, same thing, about five grand, 4,800 to 5,000 bucks, all inclusive, everything. And so for the price of a junkie used car, you could have a life-changing experience, right? You probably came five $5,000 junkie used car right now. So that's what I got. Let's finish with communion, all right? So grab your uh, communion cups that you got handed to you when you came in. Uh, For those of you that are new with us, every week at Real Life, we take communion together. And we do that for a couple reasons. One, because Jesus says that as often as we get together, let's do this in remembrance of him. And so we do. We want to, when we get the family together, we want to share communion together and remember Christ. We also don't want to get too far away from reflecting on what's available to us because of his sacrifice. It's easy in the busyness of our lives to to know that that's there and that it's important, but it slips to the background. And so every week that's part of our rhythm as a family as we do pause and reflect and remember what Christ did for us on the cross. So this morning, as we take the bread, we remember the body of Christ sacrificed for us. And with the cup, we remember the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Join me as we pray. Father God, we we love you and, and you're just such a good God. I pray that you will make a way for many, if not every person in here, if there was a way possible, Lord, for everybody to get to go to Israel or Turkey or both, Lord, I just, such a cool thing. And Lord, just, I pray that you would provide funds, arrange schedules, coordinate things where this could be a possibility for each and every one of us in our life at some point. Or that we could be a part of helping someone else go. So Lord, we love you and we just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.